And I will read the Word of God today. Uh, I'll be preaching from 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 6, 13. So that's kind of a longer passage, but I think we're going to need all of that to actually understand what's going on. So if you have Bibles, you can turn there. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 6, verse 13. Hear the Word of God. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are God's ambassadors, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children, widen also your hearts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. All right. Oh, wow. That was good. 
We're going to be in 2 Corinthians today, and I'm also going to be preaching, so next week's, I guess, uh, intensive week. Um, is that right? The next week's the intensive week. Good. I'm on track. So uh, there won't be principles hour next week, but the week after that, I'll also be preaching that week uh, on a different topic, and uh, we'll all be talking about the end of the world. Um, so that's, that's coming up. <laughs> no one knows the day or the hour. And uh, there's some sort of a nut here. So just in case you're thinking, what's next? Well, that's, that's what's next. Um, and that's going to be from Second Peter. Uh, uh, thanks for the prayer assignment. And again, I'll just pray again to center myself as we uh, come into this. We're preaching from tough texts, and that is a wide, uh, and, uh, wide category with a lot of volume. So I would say there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tough texts in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament as well. Uh, why I think this is a tough text may not be as apparent and, and kind of on the surface as what the two that Vicky preached uh, consecutively in the past two weeks, which were you read those texts, you go, this is tough. It's, it's requiring me to consider some things that do not uh, come naturally or easily to me. You might read this text and go, this isn't that tough, but I will prove to you how tough it is. <laughs> and then you will be forced to agree with me because I have been so convincing in this place and in this time. But really, it, actually, why I think this is a tough text is kind of a paradigm for basically every text in Paul where he uses the Old Testament. We're going to see that Paul cites the Old Testament here, a ran seemingly random uh, part of Isaiah from chapter 49, just kind of thrown in there. And so it's, it's saying, why and how does Paul use the Old Testament and how does that inform how we read this? Because if we're honest, most of us, when we see Paul say something that we don't understand, usually quoting from the Old Testament, we just go, huh, okay, we'll just kind of keep going and skip over it. And it's, it's like when someone says a word that you don't know or refers to something you don't know in a conversation and you pretend that you, you don't want to seem ignorant. So you pretend you go, ah, yes. And then they go, and, and so then you must have read, you know, saucer as well. And his linguistic term, you go, oh, oh, you, you can't get out of it now. So you either have to lie or you have to go, actually, I don't know what you're talking about. I never knew what you're talking about. I just shook my head because I wanted it to be over. Right. <laughs> Has that happened to you? Other times, like, you'll find yourselves, and some of you are um, doing the, the gap year program, and some of you say, what will be my first job? Some of you had many jobs. You'll find yourself in meetings. You don't know why you're in a meeting. You don't know what the meeting is about. And you don't know what anyone's talking about at the meeting. Yet you don't want them to know that. You don't want everyone else to, not, to know. You want them to have a good impression of you're an upstanding, fine citizen uh, who understands things. So I used to be in these meetings at GCU where I, where I taught in Phoenix before this. I don't care if they hear this. They can go ahead and listen to it if they want. Uh, and I would be thrown in. I would administrate this 200-person program of like 18 to 20-year-old worship leaders. And they would throw me in these meetings on tax code structures and stuff. And I'd roll up dressed like this. And I'd sit down and be like, all right, guys, what's up? And they'd be like, well, we were just talking with Shirley here. <laughs> uh, is it going to be a 542 form or is it going to be a 361? I'm going to go with the 361 in this case because it's more uh, robust. It's more comprehensive, they might say. And then uh, I would go, you know what, Jim? I'm going to throw something out of left field. Let's go with the 452 <laughs> on here. I just think it works better in this situation. I think it covers us better. You're like, absolutely. Yeah, you know what? He's on to something. I'd be like, good. Meeting adjourned. 
right? No idea what happened with the taxes, but the meeting was over and I went through. Um, just other times this might happen besides scripture would be uh, when someone describes to you a movie that you've not seen and you walk in like mid-conversation and it could be Game of Thrones is the big one right now. Everyone's talking about Game of Thrones. And so you walk into a conversation about dragons and things like that. And you just stand there going, yeah, this makes no sense to me. You know, I, I don't have the background information for this. That happens to us. That sort of phenomenon when we read scripture. And we don't have the tools or the understanding of how Paul uses the Old Testament to say some pretty profound things. So we skip over it. Or we just assume Paul is proof texting. He just wants a nice little cherry thing picked in there. There you go. That will make the conversation go. But let me just read the part I'm referring to. He says all this stuff about new creation, all this beautiful stuff. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, he goes, Working together then with him, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And you're like, amen. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I helped you. And then he continues on this big list about what it means to follow Jesus through suffering. And you go, what does that have to do with anything? Where does it come from? Why did he think of it? You can just picture Paul going, you know, like some ignoramus like me is standing there going, yeah, tell me, not the grace of God in vain. Yes, brother, preach it. And then he goes, for a favorable time, and he quotes the Old Testament, and I'd just be standing there going, I don't know what he's talking about. So we're going to say, actually, his use of that verse without it, you can't understand anything that comes before or after it. So if you don't understand what he's doing with that verse, why he's quoting that verse, what he's referring to, you'll misinterpret basically the entirety of 2 Corinthians. That's a problem. <laughs> and you go, surely this doesn't happen often. And I would say, oh, indeed it does. Because think of Galatians, right? You might have read the book of Galatians and thought of justification by faith, not by what? Works. And many of us have received this idea of Judaism that, ah, yes, Judaism was the bad religion, you know, seen in the entire Old Testament, um, that thought you could earn your salvation. And then Christianity comes, and it's through grace by faith. It's like a better religion than Judaism. And so the problem Paul had with the Jews in Galatians was they were trying to earn their salvation. They were so religious. But in the New Testament, we get it as a gift by grace through faith, right? And we go like, amen, hallelujah. But that's, that's not what's happening in Galatians. There's not a comparison actually being made when you learn the Jewish backgrounds. It's theologically true that we can't earn our salvation, but that's not what Paul's on about in Galatians. He's actually arguing that... You don't have to be ethnically Jewish and keep the covenantal Jewish works of the law to be a Christian. He's going to go on to say whether you're Jew or Greek, you're saved by grace through faith. And so misunderstanding the Jewish way that Paul engages with the text would cause us, I would say like Luther, to misinterpret Galatians. Now that's not a swipe at Luther, but it is, but it's not really. But, and, and here's what I mean. His general idea that you can't earn your salvation is correct. It's just that that's not what's happening in Galatians. And so you see, I come to 2 Corinthians 6 today because it has theological content that is very difficult. Who here enjoys suffering? <laughs> it would be really weird if you raised your hand, right? Suffering, yes, I will take some of that. Thank you very much. 
this is a, a verse that, on the one hand, theologically, in terms of its content, is going to tell us suffering is a sign of the authentic church. That suffering is not something to run from, but something to embody. And indeed, the very nature of God is suffering love. It gives itself for the sake of others. And that this is something that will define true Christian ministry. That you will suffer but that that suffering will lead to glory, that that suffering will not be futile, it will be formative, that that affliction will not be a waste, it will be a way to change you and form you into the image of God. But it's going to talk about suffering, and that's difficult when you think of, I have relatives who are sick this day in the hospital, who you, you may as well. We, we've had deaths in our families, we've had suffering emotionally and, and spiritually and mentally, and so it's... it's kind of a theological ideal to say suffering forms us and it's not futile and all these things. But then you think suffering and the bitterness and the difficulty of suffering. And to say what Paul is saying, how is that good news? So we're going to unpack that. So the theological content is tough unless we make light of suffering, which we should not do. But also the literary content is tough. And so I think both of those make it a tough text. Um, and so basically what I want to do is just work through 2 Corinthians. So if you have a, a Bible, we're going to, not the whole text. If you've taken class with me, you might be, he might really do that. Because <laughs> apparently I was supposed to be giving breaks in my two-hour classes. They kept telling me, give a break, give a break. I thought they meant after the class, I swear. <laughs> I swear, I, I was thinking, surely they don't want to stop. But now I know, like, people need rest. Something about the Sabbath principle or something. So, no, I'm not going to do the whole of Corinthians. But starting in chapter 5, here's where we get into some problems. And I'll take it from verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Now, who are the us in this? This is Paul talking about his role as an apostle, his role as a minister. It's not sort of the royal we where he's including all of us together. He's talking about his apostolic ministry. There are dudes and ladies in Corinth who are saying, you're not a true apostle. You're not the real deal. And Paul is spending the entirety of 2 Corinthians to show how he is an authentic apostle. And paradoxically, the way he does that is to show that through suffering, you see the suffering love of Jesus Christ in the true authentic church. Because the afflicted church is the authentic church. Because the authentic church is the one that embodies the love of Jesus, which suffers for the other. So without suffering, that is the lack of apostolicity. So the us here is Paul and his cohort of apostles. He says, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become, and this word, the righteousness of God. Now where else in Paul do we hear about the righteousness of God, that phrase. We hear about it in Romans in 3.21 and following. We hear about it all over Philippians and Galatians. Pretty much every Paul and epistle talks about the righteousness of God. And here's what we need to know before we get into chapter 6. The righteousness of God here is not some moral attribute of God that is transferred to us. It's been read like that in both Protestant and Catholic traditions for many years. Actually, what we can say is this phrase, the righteousness of God, is better translated here. It's better the sense of it is the covenant faithfulness of God. 
that this is God's covenant faithfulness being worked out through us, his ambassadors, as we embody Jesus' mission and ministry. It's not that, it's true that we give Jesus our sin and that we receive a status of righteousness. That's what it's talking about in Romans and in Philippians and elsewhere. But what this actually means is to say that through Paul and the other apostles, God's faithfulness to the covenant to Abraham, that through the world, through Israel, the world would be saved, is happening through his ministers of reconciliation, through the apostles. God's faithfulness to the covenant is coming through through Paul's ministry. That's what it's actually saying, that we're embodying the ministry of Jesus to bring salvation to the world. Now, why is that important? Because you get into chapter 6, and it's going to say some pretty funky stuff. Hear this again. Working together with him, meaning Christ, we appeal to you to not receive the grace of God in vain. And then comes the Old Testament verse that we're going to get into. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. So again, what does that verse have to do with anything? Does anyone know where that verse comes from? Is it in any of your Bibles? I'm so disappointed. What's that now? Yes, Isaiah 49, verse 8. And if you know the Old Testament, Isaiah 49, at least the beginning of it, is one of what is called the servant songs. These servant songs depict a suffering group or a suffering people or a, a Messiah, as it was interpreted in early Christianity, who will suffer for the people and through the sufferings of this servant, redemption will come through Israel for the world. Right? And so if I'm just reading that or if I'm just your average kind of lay reader, I'm never going to pick that up. That A, this is where it comes from, Isaiah 49. And then B, what does that have to do with anything? So what that he's quoting from Isaiah 49? What does that do? It doesn't seem to explicate anything that comes before it or after, but actually it unpacks everything. And here's why. Because what Paul is doing is not proof texting. He, when he refers to an Old Testament text, is referring to the entire passage from which that one verse comes from. So he's not just going, this would help my argument. I'll put that there, which is what we do sometimes as Christians. You ever come across those kind of people where they want to, they're like, you're not a Calvinist? You should be a Calvinist. 1 Corinthians 5, 19. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 22. 18 Thessalonians 1, verse 62. 46 Corinthians. 46. And you go, oh my God, 46 Corinthians. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and you go, yeah, I guess I'm wrong. Um, and a lot of times, those people, they're just throwing verses, boom, 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 and you're, and you're just dodging them. And you're going, John 3, 16. Um, Genesis 1. Um, you know, and, and you feel like, gosh, I got to go learn some more numbers. I got to do my maths. Um, but that's not how Paul used the Old Testament. What you should do is, Look at the verse he quotes, say, where is that from? And what is that Old Testament context actually talking about? In that Old Testament context, it's talking about how one called Israel, meaning I think originally the people or remnant within Israel, interpreted in the time of Jesus as a Messiah, would come to suffer and through his suffering, save the world through Israel, right? And what Paul is then doing is talking about his own ministry as an extension, as an embodiment, as a continuation of the suffering servanthood of Jesus. 
And then he's putting that forth as a way of discipleship for us and a way of leadership for future Christians. Because he knows that affliction is not a waste. It is not just futile. It is the formative way of God that you embody Jesus and that the suffering love of God changes us as a community and changes the world. So everything that he's going to say is not just kind of like sadistical, suffer, 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 look how much I've suffered. It's actually rooted in what it means to talk about God is, is a God like Isaiah 49, a God who suffers for the sake of the other, and through him, salvation comes to the world, and our ministry is formed in that suffering. And so let's just read a little bit of what that looks like. And imagine if this were like, you've seen our brochures for the college, right? And some of you have come in through the gap year. You see like a nice bridge and smiley people, and you're thinking a, a mission trip. And, and we've got some videos where Simon talks nicely and in a good, much more eloquently than I would. And, and what if, though, we led with this, right? What if we had to lead with, with this? Would, would you think like, this is the school for me? Um, right. And I can't do an Aussie accent, so I'll, I'll just have to do an American accent. <laughs> oh, is that a dare? <laughs> As servants of God, we commend ourselves in any way by great endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in calamities, in beatings, in imprisonments. How about a couple of riots? How about some labors and sleepless nights and hunger? How about a little bit on the soft side? <laughs> and, and you'd hear that and go, hmm, amen. Purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, and it keeps going. And you go, that sounds like a good time, right? And, and it's counterintuitive. And you say, why am I going to school for this. And actually, once you get into it, you realize that without that, we've missed the point of Christian mission, Christian discipleship. That to suffer is not an issue of futility, is an issue of being formed in the very life and love of God. And so this is very important. I mean, these, some of these words, just to let you know, I mean, we've got uh, endurance, which is a pretty good translation, afflictions, which is elsewhere translated suffering. And think of what it means to suffer. This is, this is serious stuff. Hardships and calamities can even be translated torture, in torture. It's torturous. Beatings, imprisonments. Then he goes into some of the positive ones. Purity, knowledge, patience. Is it easy for you to be patient? Probably not. Is it easy for you to be kind? Probably not. Through weapons of righteousness, through the left hand and the right hand, through honor and dishonor. And he goes through this whole list. And it's really summed up in this one. As though dying, yet we live. That this is the life of Christian discipleship. It looks like death, yet actually it's, it's life. And so I say, well, I want to ask, what does this suffering mean for us as a community? Right? Because it's easy, again, to talk about that suffering forms us in the image of God. Affliction forms us in the image of God. We can see this through the use of Isaiah 49. But what does that mean for us? Well, it means different things for different people. I'll, I'll give you an example of what it means for me, and, and maybe you'll resonate with this and think about how it applies to your own life. I think it means that we need to go into the places of vulnerability, proximity with people, um, 
that we need to be the church that is a family that is authentic in that way? Is that what the church feels like to us? Would you say, this is the family in the sense that it's just like my own family? Or would you say, this is a place I go and hear a sermon and then leave? And is this a place where without these other people, I wouldn't be me? Or is this a place where I'll decide if it suits me to show up and think about, oh, I wish they played Oh, Come to the Altar this week. You know what I mean? Or not. And so I think sometimes where passages like this really help me is to suffer with each other means to break the barrier of what church has meant for us and to live it out as Paul means. Maybe it has meant it's an authentic community where you suffer together. But I think in most of our experiences, it has become a formulaic thing where we go and receive religious goods and services and leave, right? And there's no sense that I die without this. But that's the kind of ministry we're forming you into. Wherever your ministry is, is there a sense that when something happens to each of these others, it happens to me? This is the sermon I preached the first time I preached here. Or is it, gee, that's too bad. For me, this has hit home in a couple different ways recently. I'll give a kind of silly example uh, and then uh, a serious one. Um, people are often inviting me out to lunch, which is a terrifying prospect to me because um, it involves food. And it also involves, is anyone else sort of introverted about these sort of things in here? You don't have to raise your hand. Yeah, I'm, in, I'm definitely introverted. People will say, how about you come to my house and I'll cook you a meal? And I go, what if they make fish? You know, what if they serve me oysters? Yeah, like I'm thinking about these things. What will they do? How can I be polite and still eat? Do I eat the oyster? Do I eat the oyster? I'm going to eat it. Yeah. If, it come, if push comes to shove, I'll eat the oyster. And then the oyster's in front of me. I can't eat this. God help me. You know? and, and so, but what I've found is, and that's just joking around a bit about it. What I've found is, and so I've had two lunches recently. One was uh, with some folks from Tawang Church. They invited us. I was really nervous about this lunch. It was at a park. And I even brought my own food for this one. Um, it's just really nervous because you get close to people and it's vulnerable. It's easier to talk about it than to actually do it. And so we had lunch at this park and I left, I came into it really nervous, left thinking, I'm growing closer to these people. They're more, they were five steps away from me and now they're getting closer and I'm starting to understand and empathize with them. And, and then when people get closer, you start to think, my life exists in tandem with these people. And then you start to think, if something, as, as these relationships grow, if something happens to this person, that affects me now. And if something happens to me, that affects them. And there's something dangerous about that. And there's something vulnerable about that. And there's something beautiful about that. And that's where true life, you, you know it in the moments, and we have it in our families, when you feel so close to your child or when you feel so close to your spouse. And you can, it's almost transcendent feeling. Like, this is the stuff of life. This is how it's meant to be. This is what love is. And then what I'm suggesting is when we extend that from the church to each other and then into the world, the church starts to become a place of suffering transformation for the other. It's a vulnerable place to go. It's a dangerous place to go. It might lead to your death in some ways. And surely a lunch wasn't going to do that to me, but it feels like it sometimes. Um, you know, and, and so that was an issue of me. Is as I grew close to these people, I realized, ah, being with people is the stuff of life. And the church can do that in a way that nobody else can. Another one has been people leaving. Um, 
people, people that are big parts of your life and that are important to your life, and when they're, when they're gone, either they, they, they pass away, and that's the obvious one, or people who are part of your life, and then they're in a different phase of life, and for good reasons or whatever, they're, they're in different, some, doing something different for a new season. And you start to realize, even in our college, right, and even in our churches, we exist, and the longer we're together, the closer we become. And you start to go, oh, that's dangerous. I don't know if I can deal with that commitment. But the beauty of that, you start to become more human by loving like that. You start to become more alive by experiencing life like that. And once you get a taste of it, you know that that's the way it's supposed to be. And you want to see that proliferated and the whole world experience this. You go, that's the gospel. But it's hard when you love somebody and you care about other people and they pass away or they, they go away or... And, and this has happened in many different ways, and just one that recently is people that I've been getting to know from uh, Liam's school, many of them are transient. They're here only for a short period of time. And the more you're with them, the more you think, in two months, they're leaving. And, and you start to go, you know, the worldly person would say, that's not a Christian, would say, well, just deal with it. Big deal. They're going back to where they came from. They're going to have a great life. They're, they have a good job. But when you start to go, who I am is all caught up in who they are because they've come into my life and I've come into their life. You start to realize the deep necessity for deep belonging to each other. And that that belonging sometimes means suffering with other people. That it means that we'll be together afflicted. But that paradoxically, the suffering that we embody in Jesus, literally Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I embody the death of Jesus in me so that the life of Jesus might reign in you. And you go, oh, is that the way I look at Christian discipleship? Is that the way that I look in ministry, that I'm willing to, to exercise a ministry of death, embodying the self-giving love of Jesus to see life and then to receive that ministry from you? That is what we need to be calling people to. And, that is what we, and the church will never grow unless this organic love happens. And you don't need a PhD to do it. You just need the Holy Spirit, right? And a proper understanding of Second Temple Judaism, which I've just given you. So, because <laughs> if you had the Holy Spirit and you were like, I know what this means. It's clear. How many, people, how many times do people say that, right? I know what this means. It's, it's a clear statement. It'd be like, if it were a clear statement, we wouldn't be having this conversation, Right? <laughs> People go, it clearly says. And then other people go, it doesn't clearly say. And then they just go back and forth, making gestures like this in polar opposite directions. Um, and so it's not clear a lot of times. And we need to, to study, to learn. But I'll, I'll just kind of leave us with this. Oh, here's my phone. Oh, good. Um, sorry about that. Um, I just have been known to go over time. Who to thunk it? Um, I, I've, been, I've been just, you know, I had a little time off this week, and I decided, good time to read Thomas Aquinas. Um, so <laughs> I thought, I'm ready for some relaxation. Uh, let's open the Summa Theologica. Um, so I was reading Thomas Aquinas, and he's talking through Ephesians at this point, but this same concept. And, and in the footnotes, it's, it's talking about the fact that when we talk about Christian love, and suffering love. This is not just like, here's a model of what it means to be a nice person, like Jesus-y. Go and do that. Go, see how Jesus did? You go do that now. 
nice, Jesus-y, Jesus-y, very Jesus-y, excellent Jesusity. Um, but then that's not really what we're saying. We're saying, like Romans 5 says, that suffering builds endurance, and endurance builds character, and character leads to hope, not because we're like, I'm going to walk after Jesus, because God's poured his Holy Spirit into your heart, and because of that, you are united with the God who is eternal, self-giving, relational love. This is not just like, you know, preschool, kindy age, like here's a good example, moral exemplar kind of thing, although there is that going on as well. But this is to say, actually, you are united to the God whose very nature is to pour himself out for the love of the world and for the sake of the world. And that when you are all caught up in this, bearing the terrible burdens of each other, the difficult seasons of life, you're actually empowered by God's own spirit, united to God who is love. You can't do it apart from that Holy Spirit. You cannot love the way God loves apart from his love being poured into your hearts, which is why we need to call people not just to an idea, but to Jesus, not just as individuals, but to a church where together we embody the self-giving love of Jesus. That is a church worth living in and dying for. Would you die for the church? Most of us should say, when we think of what we mean by church, I don't know. Ask me how my week's been, right? But would you, would you die for this? Is this so real to you that it's better than everything else? That without it, life has no orientation or direction or meaning or goal. That is the power of the gospel. When I read this, it is preposterous and crazy. And it is never a way that you'd advertise you know, choose my religion, and you list all that stuff off that I did in the horrible Australian accent. It's never how I'd advertise Christianity, but it's precisely the way that we advertise Christianity. And not only as those who speak about it, but as those who embody it. So I'll just leave you with this, after I said I'd leave you with those other five things. That affliction is not a sign that you're off the track of faith. That suffering is not a sign that you're missing the mark and you need like additional faith or better faith. These are the very essence in auth of authenticity. Suffering and affliction are what make you an authentic Christian and what makes the church an authentic church. It is only the suffering church that embodies the suffering love of God. And when you do that, you're actually tapping into the divine life of God. And 2 Peter chapter 1 says, when you do that, you're actually participating in the divine nature. That's what 2 Peter says. It's a beautiful language. In the midst of this world, we've had so much suffering, particularly in the United States uh, and uh, all different parts of the world with gun violence and terrorism related to religion, of all different religions. And you think, where is God in the midst of that? He's right in the midst of it. And he hasn't left us in our suffering. And it is not a waste. It is the way to become like him. Affliction is all of those things and more. And I think I'll, I'll just wrap it up by praying. Um, this to me is a tough text um, because it exemplifies how hard it is to read the Bible. Um, and then I'll pray, I promise. Just, just take this with you. Um, with every other discipline, we, we, we say we need to go, you know, go deeper and go higher with the, our understanding of this 
we expect our, our physicians to be well-trained. And if you went into a physician's office and you said, I need a heart, something to do with my heart, and they said, I don't really know much, but I've got a study thing with notes written by people who know about hearts. And I've, I've looked on Wikipedia, so I've seen a heart and the cardiovascular, uh, these things. And you go, yeah, go ahead, you know, like, work on my heart. Oftentimes in the church where you have to take people, maybe you're, you're thinking this as well, we have to e express this to people, that when you're dealing with the biblical word, it isn't like a, you know, a free-for-all. Like, what does it mean to you? And what does it mean to you? And what does it mean to you? And we can all just come here because it's entirely clear all the time. <laughs> and, and, then, and then you have your first episode where someone's like, I think God predestines people to hell. And another person says, no. And then you have fights. What? Word of God. It's clear. It, the, the scripture is the only thing I've ever come across where people think, because of maybe the way we are as a society, this is mine. I don't need to consult anyone else. I can tell you what this means. I don't need to read it in, in tandem with other people. I can just tell you what it means. It's clear. So what we can show people is actually there's a deep discipline to reading the Bible. We don't have to be like the scholar of the church, but we can show them, actually, can we teach you again how to read the biblical text from the heart of the church through the ages? Can, can, you, can you read it as one among many readers and not just as an individual, bringing your ideas to the text and saying, it's clear to me that what I like is clearly there, right? And so that, that helps, I think, to think of the Bible as it's at least as important as Aristotle. And nobody shows up to a house party and says, let's all give our opinions on Aristotle, and they're equally valid, right? And we do that with the scriptures all the time. We need to be good teachers of the word. And part of that is understanding Paul's not just using the Old Testament as a kind of throwaway thing. He's quoting entire, when he quotes a tiny verse, he's quoting the entire paragraph. The second thing is um, just, just to commend people to, to this view of the church as a suffering body. And, and so I'll just leave those two things with you um, today. And let's pray. And then I think someone's going to um, do some announcements. Then we'll pray and have some food together. And sing a song. And sing, also sing a song. Yes. Thank you, Lord, um, for all these strange verses of the Bible that we're encountering. We say that they're strange and tough and difficult. Those of us who have preached them as people who study them every day. Uh, and so if they're difficult for us, stands to follow, they should be difficult for everybody. Yet often in our churches, we're so self-assured that we know exactly what God is saying through the word. So I ask today that you'd make me and us and all of us and whoever hears this into better readers of Scripture, which you have inspired and which is the word of life to us because it brings us to the word Jesus. Um, and also, Lord, I pray that in the topic of suffering, for those here in the room and those listening to this podcast, those who have stared suffering in the face recently and been in the midst of it and have been crushed by it, I pray that you would um, sustain us in those times and that actually through that you would strengthen us in character. That we wouldn't cast off our suffering or um, think it's futile, but that we would see that it points to a life lived out in authentic discipleship in you. So we pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.